Welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective of experienced mergers and acquisitions practitioners based in the US, Asia, Europe, and the UK. We know each other extremely well. In fact, have worked on many deals together. For more details on the voices you'll hear, go to our website at theagilegorilla.com, where you'll find a host of information and past product podcasts. Our mission is to change the nature of M&A, challenge some of the core thinking and assumptions and provide some focus to specific deals and current thinking. As anyone we've worked with will tell you, we're never short of an opinion. On this episode, we talk to Joe Hine, partner at SI Partners. He talks to us about what it's like for a founder to sell a business and how to make the deal a success for both the founder who's selling and the corporate who's buying. Not just maximizing the value from the sale, but finding someone with the right cultural fit. How the acquirer needs to engage with and trust the founder, not squeeze them with corporate bureaucracy. And how private equity firms are often the best at putting in place deal structures to support and retain the founder. And Joe, first of all, I suppose, welcome to the program. And I have been listening to your podcast, Inflection Points. It's brilliant. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. We're just about to do season two. Well, we'll start recording in January, but yeah. Oh, nice uh, and structured. I listened to Cindy Gallup was a really good one and Martin Sorrell. So you're getting some good names on there. Yeah, I've got some good ones. Uh, yeah, N- nothing to be disclosed yet, but there's I've got I've got some good names lined up for next time. So um looking forward to it i've not i've not listened to them joe well, tell me a bit about tell us a bit about them what do, what do you try and go through here what what's your what's your theme uh so our theme is so it's called inflection points it's about the uh, almost as it says on the tin it's uh the people's inflection points through their career okay. so we step step back through uh moments where there's been a major change in somebody's journey um, either professionally or um, or for themselves or actually, you know, for their businesses. So a lot of the people we sp- I spoke to, someone like uh, Dimi Albers, who runs a business called Debt. They've done two lots of private equity now owned by Carlisle, um, about 4,000 people across the world. And we sort of stepped through taking the first bit of um, money that they took from Waterland, how that came about and, you know, kind of their trials and tribulations and the decisions they made along the way. Um, so it's quite cool. Yeah, it's good fun. I, I, is there much comment? Uh, there's a very famous book by a chap called I can't remember what was the first name. Malcolm Gladwell. Frank. Malcolm, right? Not, not no, not him. He talks about um, basically he talks about luck, and he talks about the more successful that you are, and the more you tend to attribute that experience to yourself. But when you go into the question about what what moments of great fortune influenced your career, then you start to unravel that question, and you start to see actually a lot of it's down to you know just being in the right place at the right time having a random introduction that being made to you does that, does that come out of this this sort of conversation at all not yeah really? definitely definitely there's a um, there's a really nice business uh in poland digital transformation business i spoke to um on one of my podcasts a guy called Poiter. and uh his his entire client base is outside poland right so they're all in right. germany um which is quite rare if you speak to a lot of polish businesses actually typically they've got sort of a lot of lo- local clients domestic clients um and that all happened a was happenstance a friend of his as he was starting up the business a friend of his from university said come and meet this guy from germany he's yeah. in he's in town so he dropped wherever he had he drove two two hours to to go and meet this guy and it was an international client and so therefore 
they're an international business because that was their first client and they thought this is good we'll repeat that so yeah absolutely yeah. there's you know but you can step back as to as to why that happened you know his friend wouldn't have introduced him if he hadn't thought that he was good and you know and sure. kind of actually could deliver and so forth but but yeah there's definitely moments of luck that are in there interesting so what we tend to talk about here is a real mixture of things but there's a if there was one focus it's about uh, m&a and the the pre and post deal, how you make it a success and how things work behind the scenes. Um, and the thing that's really interesting for me about what you do and what you do at SI Partners is working particularly with founders. And now I'm not necessarily talking about small businesses. It could be a million turnover. It could be a billion turnover. But where you've still got that founder in place, um, somebody who has significant equity, um, significant kind of day-to-day role, how that influences the deal, both post-deal and pre-deal? Yeah, Maybe if we, we sort of step back and I mean, you're right. So, you know, majority of my business is working with entrepreneurs and they are in founder led businesses. And there's definitely quirks um, that you have in doing MA with founder led businesses than you have doing, doing it within corporate environments. It does tend to be a bit smaller, um, just as, a, you know, founder led businesses don't tend to get to the same size as, as corporates because in becoming a corporate, you have to, <laughs> you have to kind of go through the steps and change in your ownership. Um, but it's, so, so, the big difference is it's just much more personal um and much and and much less professional so the businesses because they're slightly smaller they haven't grown up and won't necessarily have all of the processes and the systems that uh a much much larger business will have so board meetings might be slightly less formal the accounting function might might just not have kind of all the bells and whistles on it for example um but then that, that's where a buyer sees a lot of opportunity to kind of step into it and and to help but it does mean that uh, we have to do a lot more support around uh, help making sure somebody's in it, you know, the finances are where you make or break a deal, right? Because if you can't, you know, actually predict a forecast, even if you've got an offer on the table that, you know, and the numbers turn the other way, then kind of that, that will, that will kill a deal. Um, but it's really the, the, the personal nature around it. People worry a lot more about the consequence of what it's going to be like on the, on the other side of the deal, because they it's it's incredibly personal to them um and these are all very very driven people these are all uh you know it's starting a business i for me it has got a lot of similarities to religion right you've got a blind faith in what you're doing is right and that you are you know kind of um that and 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 that you can uh you're better than other people religion may not necessarily be like that but um and 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 a real sense of purpose and and drive to to build your business to get it where it is today um so therefore they they want to make sure uh, a conversation we often have is it's not always about the maximum value it's about the right home and actually they're so more in so much more interested in um the cultural fit and how does it feel um their biggest concern will be uh can I stand up in front of my team and tell them I'm selling to X, right? Don't, that- don't, I, I, I love that, right? I mean, I think that's a fantastic thing, but I suppose I'm, to, to, to call it, I'm going to call bullshit on some of it. And I want to have, I want to have a proper yeah. conversation with you about it because I've spoken to so many corporates who've said, we're buying this business because the founder's fantastic because they've got this entrepreneurial spirit. 
when the reality is of integrating that culture, that mindset mm. into an, into a, a, a corporate that is well established, that's run through a process based exercise mm. as opposed to purpose based, it's just virtually impossible. And within six months or a year afterwards, these guys are either deeply depressed and want to leave, or or in some cases they've actually even chucked out because effectively it just doesn't square hole round peg yeah. all that scenario. So talk to me about how how you get past that stage do you know what that that's absolutely one of the hardest things and uh what you'll find with entrepreneurs because also in an entrepreneurial company they will have majority shareholders so they stand to make a lot of money and actually because yeah. it's personal it'd be, it'd be it could be quite life-changing and what you'll see is going back to that purpose that drive that that sense of building a company disappears Okay. Right. You you know that they they're within another organization. They don't have creative freedom, uh, and and also, but it, it's it's almost the end of the journey. Sometimes they're selling it, so so mentally, it's quite hard for them to then step into the next phase and you know be right. Okay, you know beyond you know be, there's earn out structures in the businesses that I work the the deals that I do nearly always because there's a lot of there's a lot of people talent yeah. um being being in the business so um you know that's obviously quite motivational whilst that's in there but you're right at the end of that it it does become hard to work out how you how you actually keep people um and and it's quite fascinating I think because uh a, a lot of them will even though they become very wealthy they they don't feel they sort of have earned the money they they're just entitled to it they'll sort of put it away and think oh you know their financial advisor will turn and go this is you know you've done it you've cracked it you know you you don't need to work again and they'll sit there and go oh that doesn't work i'm going to take all my money out of that and go and put it in investments and have the risk and the rewards and you know so there is there is there's so much psychology behind behind what you're doing so but ben to, to take your point yeah i mean how do you make that successful so um i think there are uh there, there are it's so much of it's personality driven okay so i think the more mature the uh the the entrepreneur i think actually sometimes you get a better result they kind of understand you know as you go through life you 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 have lots of learnings and so much of life is often learning about compromise and you know i think certainly i've got better at compromise as i've got older um, yeah. and I and I do see that sometimes the more mature people that sell are better at collaborative working on on the other side. It's not exclusive, but I, I do think there's an element element there. Um, and also their experiences. So one of the companies that we sold, uh, he sold a business, he then started the second one, he sold that, bought it back, and he's just he sold it again and he's just coming out of his own out now. Uh and he sold it to BCG. And uh he was like right this time i'm going to lean in uh rather than being quite defensive because you've got you know financial structures that benefit me if i just protect my business and protect my pnl actually i'm going to absolutely lean into this and make those networks and you know uh and build and build that that business within the organization um and inevitably doing that as well you know you'll get a second tier you're inculcating your business within that organization so you create more sustainability um of doing that and uh and that's definitely something that we we talk about with with you know kind of people that um and getting the right structure helps that that, that was a quite interesting structure that allowed that to happen or allowed him to behave in that way 
So the things that the entrepreneur can do in terms of their mindset going in and the maturity and how they see mm. it, and the things you've seen on the corporate side, if you did say you really mm. did want to retain uh, that individual, mm. any tips for a corporate that was, you know, how they go about retaining them? Yeah. I I think so. I mean, look, I, I you guys are all about post-merger integration. Um, but the, one of the things that corporates just don't understand and, and don't get, and, and, and I understand why, is that the M&A journey is not the 12 months prior to buying it. It's the 24 months, you know, the 12 months afterwards as well. And yeah. I've only met one organization that, one large organization that, that's done that really well. And effectively the way they did that was then to take their M&A team and create an integration team internally that then sat down and worked out actually, how do you, how do you kind of do this and how do you kind of make it, make it work? But on that, on that very, that's a really interesting observation, that whole 24 month journey. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to challenge you a bit because that's part of this process, right? You know, from an advisory perspective, it's a bit like a headhunter, right? Often the headhunters place people into a role yeah. and all the unseen stuff that happens post the placement, post they've been paid the fee, basically, mm. which is the, because they'll know the, the uh, organization much better than the, the candidate will, the successful yeah. candidate will. Yeah. So it's about creating that network network it's about creating an understanding of the corporate that they're going into it's about understanding the inflection point the culture the ways of working in that organization that generate that they don't get paid for any of that right you don't get paid for any of that period post post the first 12 months post the the sale process obviously your reputation is is driven partly by your success in this process so so you're almost doing something which is counter your own business model if you like how how do you deal with that yeah i mean it's 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 not like you say it's it steps beyond that remit okay yeah. uh you know we very much see that our journey with the company doesn't stop at completion yeah. uh you know we will always talk to clients beyond that sometimes it's purely mechanical <laughs> what happens now in the deal sometimes it's it's a lot of the soft stuff about what they should be doing and how they should be kind of kind of coping with it so so yeah we don't get directly involved with it because it, and it's quite hard for but buyers uh, generally believe that they know what they're doing and 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 kind of uh, and and kind of how it's going to work. And some of the um, some of the more experienced buyers, uh, they they use very long deal structures. They use uh, partial partial sales and equity to to incentivize people to go on the the kind of journey. And and the guys that are really good this are private equity. Um, and that's definitely the one of the strongest themes in our space is private equity are stepping into to what we what we do. Um, and you know they'll, they'll buy a business on fifty percent cash, fifty percent equity. So therefore, you're tied into the next journey. And then if you want to keep a job, then the next people that come along will buy fifty percent of your equity again. So it's you know ever diminish ever d- diminishing re- um, sort of returns on it. But like, but you never actually get bought out if you're staying within the business because you're always want to be incentivized. So that that is that's is the most effective way of, of of kind of making it work um i also think buyers need to work out what they're buying yeah. and just be really really careful and there's definitely a understanding that uh buying a business for that mercurial talent is i would say uh a precarious thesis um to to, to buy a business i think you've got to buy the business and the people beneath it and um uh business i sold recently they spent more time talking to 
to other people other than the the founder and CEO, um, yeah. because they knew that actually the founder and CEO, great, you know, he'll go and do what he's going to go and do, and and actually they, they give him very free reign. Um, yeah. Accenture are quite good at that. They just tell founders go and talk to clients, just just go and do what you want to do. I'm not going to put any constraints around you, um, but invariably you're you know you'll behave in a in a good way because you've spent years and years building your business. And it's the only way you know how to behave. So you'll keep trying to win work and bring new work in. And then they build the structure and they build the, the the culture around everybody else to make sure that that you know they know the founders are going to go. Um, they keep them two years. That's great. Three years, fantastic. Four years, absolutely superb. But it's probably not going to be any longer than that. And they need to make sure that they're using the rest of the business to to keep going. That's fascinating. Paul, I was going to say there's two two possible scenarios because maybe the the uh, the founder uh, will no longer have a, an active role in the business from day one just sell and go and you know, grab the money and run. And I think in those cases, those people are tortured by what's going to happen to my people. Yeah, you know, uh, There's a lot of guilt. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, if they do stay on, um, in many cases I've seen, uh, those people do not fold easily into a corporate structure. No, I think, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, so as I said, you know, the, the deals that we do are people businesses or people and technology businesses. Um, if I have a founder that's got a large shareholding that wants to 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 sell and run, um, it makes it very hard to do the deal, quite frankly, um, because it's very risky. There's always going to be less value involved. Uh, founders, uh, unless they are genuinely not working in the business, if they have a role in the business, then um, there is an impact of them not 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 leaving. And if they're if they're full time in the business, the founders worth two to three people. Right, just because of the nature of their drive and commitment and ability. Um, so you know, if you've got somebody that's full time in the business and they wanted to step back at the at day one, um, post post completion, I mean, you, you're going to compromise value greatly because there's just so much more risk for a buyer. I'm going to put a posit and a theory in front of you and see what you think about this, Joe. My theory is that disruptive innovation can only really happen in those project-based, single project-based organizations. Incremental innovation can happen in large corporates and the two don't necessarily mix. I'm wondering whether when you look at the the story post-acquisition, whether you see that continued level of disruption or whether it gradually sort of peters away, a bit like, you know, sand. Um, uh, and, and that that spirit of of we can change things really fundamentally sort of doesn't really survive in that corporate environment. Tell me about that. You mean putting something that's quite innovational in, yeah, into, within to a corporate environment and how does it, how do you make it stick? Correct. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Incredibly difficult. Okay, um, I think some corporates have done it better than others. So uh, we're alumni of PwC, and yeah. I think PwC are, um, if I may, they find it incredibly difficult to buy businesses that are innovative because they're just not an innovative business, and they can't do anything with those companies other than squash the culture of, you know. Uh, it might be slightly different now, but certainly, you know, kind of pre-pandemic, the culture is pretty, it's pretty stuffy and suits and ties and, you know, yeah. does, jeans and t-shirts don't fit. Um, I, I, I quite admire Deloitte Digital and what they did, certainly to begin with. I think they've probably got, they've got quite big now, so they're a bit of a behemoth, but they set up a new office in Farringdon, you know, kind of the other side of Farringdon from where they were, 
had such a different feel it felt much more like an agency you know people were dressed differently the the narrative was different the, the language was different so I, I think environment is is incredibly important because you never really get the synergies unless you bring the people into your yeah. into your kind of into your kind of world um but yeah it, inevitability inevitable that you're going to soften the edges of anything you know as as it kind of goes into the a, a, a very large corporate culture because that culture will dominate you know the ten thousand pound gorilla will roll over and it will eventually kind of squash it unless you're protecting it somehow yeah i mean it's a real contradiction isn't it so effectively you say it's really hard to sell the business uh if the founder doesn't want to stay so they're you know the buyers mm want mm. that founder to be retained and yet the Absolutely. first thing the, the fact you know the buyer does the, the 100 pound gorilla is it you know in the first six months roll over and squishes the life out of the founder so mm. i suppose for me it's um my experience is it's perhaps been a lot of the small things because the, the, the great thing about innovation and the, the flexibility of the founder is you, you're able to make you know seemingly small decisions but it gives you agency it gives you a feeling like you're in control and all of that goes out of you in terms of you know where you stay in a hotel your flights maybe where your <laughs> office is you know all those little things yeah 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 all add up to actually now i've got to you know do what somebody else tells me yeah no we, i sold a business to an argentinian company and the CEO of the business uh, was based in the UK, but he had a US UK business. Um, then had to fly to Argentina um, economy. <laughs> it's like it's a fourteen-hour flight. I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, he was. He just said, "Well, I'm upgrading myself." And and somebody else uh, was. They sold to a, a French business, but they are uh, spent a lot of time in the US. And he, he just like look when I'm going to beg for forgiveness rather than ask for permission and just kind. And and that and that is uh, a lot of the advice that we would give people is actually if you're going into another organization, beg beg for forgiveness, not not ask for permission. If you ask for permission, you're that's when your culture dies, right? You've almost yeah. got to be slightly have a swagger and and be swashbuckling when you when you go in to to kind of to do that. Um, but so much uh, depends upon the culture that you're going into. We touched on that, and um, we've talked about big businesses like PwC and Deloitte. Um, you know, kind of in my industry, WPP and Omnicom and IPG, they they were the sort of incumbent buyers, certainly 20 years ago. We've been going 20 years and they were the beginnings of, of what we what we did. Uh, they are not what the, who the people want to sell to. Yeah. So um, the, the sellers are, and there's a big business uh, in our industry called Iris. And uh, they sold to a, a business called Chale. And the reason they sold to Chale is because they weren't WPP. They were the new kid on the block. And everybody likes to sell to the new kid on the block, hoping it's going to be a bit different, um, of which it, it will, obviously the journey will be different. And, and that's why I say, you know, the there's always a reticent uh, historically for people to take equity and just want cash, right? Everyone wants cash. Why would you take paper in somebody else's business? We have no control. But the advent of private equity in our space has meant that people are willing to take that risk. And in part, it's because... The, the deal structure wouldn't typically allow them to do that. You know, half your money in paper, people would be like, uh, you know, no chance. But actually, if you're backed by KKR or Carlisle, you go, oh, do you know what? You know, that's a bet that I'll take. And what you get is you get that entrepreneurial spirit, that entrepreneurial environment, you know, that you you kind of get inside and uh, it isn't that different to what you were doing before. You do get a bit more autonomy and, you know, kind of it, it, the people in there do look a bit like you and feel a bit like you. Um, and I think you create, you do create longevity that way. You you remind me of, a, I remember um, in the sort of late nineties tech 
bubble type scenario where um uh in this case it was garage business someone who built an, an amazing app um uh, had it on their server in, in their garage they sold it to nokia siemens and um the head of risk management uh, supposedly said i'm really worried that these um servers are going to be walking out the door without us having any control over it and the head of security said that's fine i can sort of that and uh his solution was to put you know a six foot five finnish gorilla in front of the garage you know um and just keep an eye on it which which also terrified the children in the house who happened to be living <laughs> next door to it basically <laughs> classic classic corporate solution which doesn't really work in a, in a, in a personal business really in, in that the way. world yeah yeah indeed indeed yeah. Um, so um, the, I was going it, to. It's interesting you 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 point to private equity as being um, a more sensitive environment to this process. I, I, I'm interested in in how the last eighteen months, two years have looked for you. Um, perhaps with private equity struggling a little bit more, both raising money and also mm-hmm. um, competing in a marketplace where because uh, of interest rates going up so quickly, return returns generally are are in a much better place than they were, mm. and therefore the mm. option of an alternative investment class is is, um, mm. is 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 not so attractive anymore. Have you seen much change there, mm. either in terms of deal structure or in terms of appetite or in terms of the shape of the the, the way that that interest perhaps is expressing itself? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a great question. So, um, it, it, so we we operate in the low low mid market. Okay. Um, and so our deal ticket size is, I don't know, 10 at the bottom, hundred at the top, uh, yeah. million EV. Uh, and we sit in, in the majority of our transactions are kind of in the middle. We've not seen a huge impact of interest rates on deal on demand. Um, we have seen a impact on deal structure. So, um, people aren't with the debt, particularly when the debt markets originally shut, um you know people just were weren't able to finance with with you know acquisition with debt but then they were just replace it with equity so you're just, you're just seeing a bit a large much larger equity portion that then they'll refi at the point that they can in the future because you know there's always an anticipation that you will be able to get to, to get a to get debt in the future it's just kind of wet um the reason that we haven't seen a dip in demand i think is twofold um well primarily it's people have raised the money so they have the backing of lps uh, they have a requirement to deploy that to to honor the commitments that they've made. Um, there is not been many assets in the market. 2023 has been a very uncertain year for most people. It's not a year to run a process. Um, the businesses that have been, there are, you know, nothing's unequal, you know, recessions are unequal. So there's definitely, you know, people that are succeeding. And, and those businesses that have gone to market have commanded very, very high prices because, because scarcity of demand. Um, I actually think that you're going to see, certainly in the low mid market, I think you're going to see, well, not, I don't know, but I'm really interested by what's going to happen in 25. Because I think that people are going to run down their portfolio or run down the the, the money that they've raised and they'll go out to try and raise more. And you're right, Ben, that's the point at which you kind of go, well, you're offering me 12% return on my private equity portfolio. I can get 12% return on the debt market uh, yeah. or the structured debt market. So this is not a difficult decision on where yeah. I want to put my money in a yeah. in a time of of you know the most global uncertainty we've had in um one of not two generations. So um I I don't and the other thing about private equity is they don't care about downturns and recessions. They're like, I've got three months, I've got three years where I want to be in, or four years when I want to be in, go and buy stuff. Yeah. Um and go and go and make things happen. So we we've seen sort of even if it's more expensive, because they're always 
operate, you know, and well, they're under pressure, but also they're operating on, uh, you know, a multiple, as long as they buy a multiple that's lower than the multiple they think they're going to sell at, actually, they can be very stretchy on price in a way that a corporate can't because, because, because a corporate is, you know, at its terminus, it's, it's listed in main and its share price just fluctuates very little and, and thus its EV fluctuates very little and thus its multiples fluctuate very little. Whereas in private equity, they're like going, well, this, I'm still comprising a lot of the growth in this business, hence why I'm in it. And a lot of the, 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 the businesses that we are working with are within growth funds of Bridgepoint and TPG and so forth. So they can still price at very, very toppy multiples because they're anticipating the growth and they're anticipating the future opportunity in, in the sectors that they're investing in. So I, we're not seeing that at the moment, but it's going to bite at some point, I think. Um, I hope it doesn't, but, you know, yeah. I, yeah. The, the, the future is less certain than, than where we are now. I just going to want to go back to the um, one of the points you're making about founders really looking for interesting businesses to sell to and, and being a bit yeah. more choosy. I suppose I've, can you give me confidence? My experience has been, uh, your founders have said that through the deal process, but when the offers are on the table and in black and white, mm. they'll take the, 26 million rather than the 20 million because it's on the table mm. and it's a slightly bigger yacht they're thinking of yeah. um they'll always go for the higher price have you got real examples where the, yeah, you yeah. know founders are, are, are properly actually making more of a um uh, a different decision yeah i i think so so you know you, you you get all different personality types you'll get different founder personality types right and and so you, there's, there's people out there that have built a business to sell a business and make the absolute most most money they can right and that's their only reason for being in business, the only reason, you know, they build it to sell it and they, they do the right thing along the way because that's what's good for business. And, you know, they'll, you know, so they're, they're people, yeah, they'll, they'll take the 26 million over the 20 million every time and they'll take the bigger yacht. That's probably, I don't know, five, 10, 15% of people, actually a lot of people that, that we work with and we, you know, it's a lot of people that we work with are accidental entrepreneurs. Okay. So they're people that, just started a bit of business they were good at something people kept asking them to do more of it and <laughs> so they get a bigger bigger business and then they sort of turn around and they're sitting on 15 million of revenue and 3 million of profit going well, what do i do now um or people that just built good businesses right and you know, they're just good business people and they built good businesses um but they really care about their culture and they really care about their people and i think that is the difference between sort of corporate life where it's very transactionary i'm you know I'd, I'm here, I'm doing a job. I might be CEO of a business, but I'm here for two years, three years. I don't know, you know, however long the, the market allows me to be, you know, kind of whatever allows me to be here. And then I move on, but you get much longevity, more longevity. So people genuinely, and, and they're incredibly loyal to their people because they will have been challenging times as they've grown a business and people have been loyal to them when they could have perhaps left and earned more money somewhere else or when it's uncertain and they wanted more certainty and they didn't, they stayed. So they feel this incredible loyalty to, to the teams. And, um, I see more often than not people will make the best decision for the business and the people than necessarily the best decision just kind of financially for themselves. Now, you know, obviously the aim is always to try and get it, try and get them to be in the same place. Uh, we had a deal uh, a few years ago, um, about 18 months ago, and we had three buyers and uh, incredibly competitive, um, really hot, hot business. Uh, and they kept, you know, flipping there are everyone would just up their offer a little up their offer a little up their offer a little each each kind of day over a succession of days and literally the the seller's preference changed <laughs> like day by day on who they wanted to to sell to and and what it comes down to and i've spoken to him on my podcast um uh afterwards about how did you make the decision he said it's just about the people it was only the people that that made me 
I, I knew my journey and the way they were going to behave and what it was going to feel like after the transaction was going to be better with these people. And that was so much more important to me than the money because you've, you've got two, three years, four years of your life, right? You've, you know, you could be miserable and rich. These guys are rich enough. Okay. Be, be, be slightly less rich and happy is, is a much easier decision for most people to make. Fantastic. Fantastic. Joe, I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, I'm sure other people have. And my question is, it sort of goes to all three of us or four of us have been in, in this post deal world for a, a, a long time. And most of us probably have had some sort of start point in a large corporate PwC for three of us and uh, a large corporate for you, Paul, as well. And and I suppose, I you know, I still continue to see this sort of value destruction that's taking place. And I, I think back to the fundamentally the education that we all had in those environments and think about how inappropriate it was for what we now see i suppose so if you were talking to your younger self saying to yourself you know what am i going to pay absolutely no attention to in the, in the process that i learned um you know at the uh, at the at the knee of a partner and what would i have listened to more actively if if, if i had the opportunity to what would that be mm. it, it, i mean i guess so you can answer that question in a few ways um you know i think my if I sort of just answer on a very personal level, my, the biggest thing is just not to sweat stuff, right? You know, don't worry about things and, you know, kind of when, when bad things happen, just move on. Like the best CEO I ever worked for, we there was a, it, it was a, it was a miscommunication and then there was a mistake and, you know, something happened and he came to me and he, God, was it my fault? Probably more my fault than somebody else, but he came to me and gave me an absolute bollocking down the phone. And then at the end of it said, uh, right, that's done. Let's move on. You know, it was like I've said my bit, learn and and kind of kind of go on. So I think that's the thing that that I'd I'd kind of really sort of relish at. The for me in my career, I've learned far more and, and kind of what I value far more by stepping outside of PwC and the theory and getting into the practice and the real world and meeting real people doing real business. Um and that's what's really transformed my journey and my learning was just getting involved. I, sh I, I regret not getting involved more quickly in business than in corporate life, um, because I just think you use a richer experience for me, um, you know, for, for what I enjoy. I'm going to steal your final question that you ask on inflection points. I think I've got it right. What is it? It's what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? <laughs> that is, yeah, that is. After looking back, let's look forward. What is it that you're looking, what do you excites yeah. you about the next 12 months? I, um, I'm actually genuinely quite excited about the next 12 months. Um, 23 has been a good year for us, but it's been a difficult year for the market. Uh, the conversations that we're having right now with people are particularly sellers uh just gives me a lot of confidence going into 24 that it's just going to be a much more interesting time i think with any change in the market as soon as it's in the rearview mirror uh it starts to fade from memory and people just get on with the future okay so you know take trustonomics <laughs> brilliant um but once we've got past that we've got rishi in um, love him or let hate him. He brought stability, so right. Okay, we've got stability. Let's go, and 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 that's what we're seeing in the marketplace now. And, and I think we're going to get back to uh, a different place than we were. Growth won't be as good as it perhaps was through the pandemic for many reasons, but I think we're going to get back into a good place and start having some good conversations and and people's businesses getting back to to kind of growth and and positivity. And 
Um, you know, for me, not only is it good for my business in that way, but it's just good for the people that I work with and the entrepreneurs that I work with, because you just see people in such a better space and, and, and just doing good things for growing their businesses and growing the economy and growing, you know, the country. And, 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 uh, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Fantastic. Thanks, Joe. Brilliant. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks very much for listening. We love hearing from you. If you've got any ideas, comments or critiques, please just let us know via Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. Thanks also to Sarika for providing the music. See you soon.